Many moons ago, my wife and I were in Yugoslavia, which tells you it had to be a while back because there is no Yugoslavia anymore. They changed all those borders and names and so forth and so on. But we were there. We were for a, there for a conference. We were at uh, the hotel at the conference. was just a nice, pretty little scenic, you know, not a name hotel chain thing, just this nice little Yugoslavian hotel. And behind it ran this alpine stream. Some of us got the idea that that would make a great swimming pool. You know, like it's hot. It was hot in Yugoslavia in the middle of the summer, like every place else pretty much. So we thought, what better than a nice, cool alpine stream? Well, to give you an idea of the temperature, have you ever seen the Titanic? Um, you know, the whole part where Jack describes what it's like when you hit the water. Uh, and <laughs> that's, that's what the water was like. But I didn't want to be a chicken, and there were other people in there, so I thought, I'll adjust. My body will adjust. It was cold. It was so cold. But I thought, nope. You know, every pool I've ever been in, it always felt cold at first, and then it felt better afterwards. So I just hung out, and I stayed in this water. And after about five minutes or so, sure enough, I couldn't feel a thing. I mean, it was, it was great. And, um, and I think I had, I, I, you know, I was in the middle of Yugoslavia, and there, we didn't go to see a doctor or anything, but it took me two hours to stop shaking after I got out of the, uh, out of the stream. It, I literally went to the hotel, got in under the covers, and, and shook for about two hours. My, my point is that we can very quickly adjust to some of the most shocking things. It's human nature. It's the frog in the kettle kind of an idea. We all know about it. We live as Christians in the world. We're in the world. We're not of the world, hopefully. (laughs) That's the ideal. We're in the world, but not of the world sometimes. And the world has a way of creeping in. And the world should be shocking to us. Now, I have a TV, and I do watch some TV. Back in the day, I didn't have it. And I remember uh, the first time I turned the TV on after about five years of not watching TV. And I remember the shock value of that. It was like, oh my goodness, what has happened? But eventually it's like we kind of get used to it. Our brains can't handle constant shock. And so it's, it's as if something in us turns the volume down and we're no longer able to respond. It's, and I think that's spiritual hypothermia. So if you want kind of an idea, a peg to hang some thoughts on today, that's kind of where I'm, I'm coming from is, is our problem of that spiritual hypothermia where we get used to the things of this world. We left Paul last time in Athens waiting for Silas and Timothy, you'll recall. It says, now while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. What does it mean that his spirit was provoked within him with regard to the idolatry of Athens? The idea of of provocation, both in the Greek underlying word here and in the English, is similar in that it's that idea of of being shocked to the point of of wanting to act. It's, It's something that doesn't just pass over you. It's something that just instantly makes you want to get in there and respond. You're provoked to action. Think about Jesus in the temple. Now, the word's not used there, but that's exactly what happens when he goes into the temple and he sees that that the Jewish people had set up booths for changing money into the the temple currency and for selling doves and other sacrificial things. And, uh, And Jesus comes in and they've taken the court of the Gentiles, 
which should have been that place where the Gentiles could come and see and be drawn to Yahweh, and they, they had abused it. And so out of a jealous sense of guarding God's integrity, he was provoked to overturn the tables. And that's kind of what Paul is, is feeling right here. Athens was an idle menagerie, if there ever was one. And I know the ancient world was full of idols, but Athens like put everyone else to shame. Some of their own people said that if you threw a stone in Athens, you were more likely to hit an idol than just some stray passerby. It was that full of idols, and and Paul is just struck by it. Now, was Athens a beautiful place? Yeah, it was iridescent. iridescent. You'd still like to go to Athens today, if you could travel there, it's still, I mean, even though so much of it's just ruins now, even the ruins are beautiful, yet it was a cesspool of stinking, fetid, false worship. Now, did Paul just shake the dust from his feet and say, you know what, not on my watch, I'm getting out of here. Now, what, isn't that sort of our response, like, like we want to go, oh man, I need, I need to get out of here. This place, is, this place is awful. This is like voodoo or something. I don't want to be anywhere near this. Let me get out of the darkness. That would be my response. Let me get out of there. But, but, but no, Paul is provoked, and he acts. So here's the big idea, which you have in your bullets already, so you see it coming. Um, we should be provoked. So be provoked by your Athens. Think of it that way. Get out of the hypothermia. Get real. Get shocked. Be provoked, and be provoked by what is happening right in your backyard. So here's, here's what we can do. First of all, reason with them. Reason with them. We're talking about those people of the world, the idol worshipers. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Now notice that little word, so. All right, So attaches this to the provocation. You, you, you follow the logic of that? He was provoked, so what did he do? In response to the provocation, his, and he was going to do this anyway, wasn't he, even if he hadn't been provoked. But the provocation led him all the more to get out there and to reason with him. He begins in the synagogue. Yes, even there in Athens, there were synagogues. So he went there, and we know what he did in the synagogue, don't we? Because we've seen it before, we saw it, we've had it explained to us, we've seen it in a number of play it, places, uh, you know, where you have Pisidian Antioch, it's a lot of description there. At Thessalonica, you'll recall that there was a deep description there of how Paul opened the scripture and reasoned with them and, op- and explored these things in, in discussion, in debate. He reasoned with them using the scripture. Now, with the, with the Athenians, he had to come at it from a slightly different standpoint. He couldn't just go, okay, turn in your Bibles. They didn't have Bibles. They didn't know what God he was even preaching. They didn't know, even though they had Jewish synagogues there, apparently the Jews had not been doing that bang up a job to reach the vast majority of the people there. And so when you look, and we're not there yet today, we're not going to get into what Paul actually tells them, but you'll see that Paul drills down and lays a foundation so that they'll understand what they're dealing with, the God who made the heaven and the earth and all that's in it. And then, and then he reasons with them. To both group, he declares the resurrection of Christ from the dead. Peter says this to his readers. He says, always being prepared to make defense to anyone who asks you 
for a reason for the hope that is in you. Now that's my little bridge to get us from Paul, who is like super smart, to us who are kind of super dull. Uh, like, because I know we're sitting there, we go, well, that's Paul. Huh. You know, Paul could do that. Um, but Peter says to all of us little know-nothings out here, he's like, uh, yeah, you be ready. You be ready to give an account for the hope that is in your heart if somebody asks you for reasons. How many feel like we get just a little bit lazy and too accustomed to the idolatry in the world around us when it comes to sharing our faith or, or giving that account or being ready? How many feel ready today? If you walk out of here, and uh, I was going to say go, you go to play Azul, but that won't work. But you go somewhere that's still open, and, uh, and there's somebody there, and, and there's half of an opening to get in a, into discussion with him. Could you tell them reasons why you're a believer? And I'm not saying you have to be an expert at apologetics. You don't have to be the next, you know, uh, C.S. Lewis or, 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 or one of the, those sorts of people that we, that we think of there. But can you give some account for why you, why you trust in Christ and what that means to you? I think it behooves us to at least make the effort to be prepared for that. Be in the scripture. Know the gospel. Acquaint yourself with some of the arguments that are out there. There's a book that we put into the library, which I see somebody already borrowed the loaner, and somebody's purchased one of these, but it's that Reasons for God by Tim Keller. It's not the only book on apologetics, but it's an easy read, and it will, I think it'll fire your imagination, give you some ideas, or whatever, but be, be prepared to reason with them. And then keep showing up. Keep showing up. Woody Allen said something about showing up. I don't know what the exact quote was. Something like, you know, in life, success, you know, 80% of it's showing up. How many of you found that to be true, by the way, in your life? Uh, no, just me. Okay, well, uh, <laughs> yeah, um, Paul just kept showing up. It says he came daily. Daily he was there. I like that. He didn't take no for an answer. He didn't get easily discouraged. He's, he is water dripping, that soft, you know, water. What, water is so harmless, isn't it? And yet, when it drips on that stone, and it keeps dripping pretty soon, you, you've, got a, you've got a path worn in the stone. That's, that's sort of Paul. He's unrelenting. Church, it is easy to get discouraged, isn't it? Because the world looks just like the world always has looked, and worse. So what good are we doing? And the world will keep whispering into our ears, you're not doing anything. Your gospel doesn't mean a thing. We're still out here, and it's the same world, and we're getting worse by the moment, and you aren't doing a thing. But here's the deal. We are planted on the rock, which is Jesus Christ. We are planted on the gospel. We are still here. We are still proclaiming the word of God. The ark is still being built. The plank is still being added, plank upon plank. God is still true to his word. We are not to grow weary, the Bible says, in doing good. Because if we do not give up, we will reap a harvest at the appropriate time. And I don't think that's just talking about rewards in heaven. I'm talking about a harvest. How many want to see a harvest in Great Bend? A great outpouring of, of, of a movement of the Spirit of God calling men and, and women to salvation. But if we want that to happen, if we want that to happen as far as it depends upon us, we have to keep showing up. We have to keep, and I don't know, that encourages me. 
That encourages me. I can't do a lot, but I can show up. The Bible says we're not to give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, especially, it says, as we see the day approaching. And, and if you think that we're in bad times and the world's gotten bad, all the more reason we need to be here. You're like, well, we can't be witnessing to people while we're here. Well, in a sense, you can. But this is, this is where you recharge your batteries to be able to tell about your faith elsewhere. Speak to the available. Speak to the available. God is sovereign, and so nothing is utterly by chance. We don't believe in a random universe or a fate-driven universe. When things happen, we don't go, well, as, you know, as fate allowed, there's no fate. It's God. It's God. But there's an interesting, and really this is just a figure of speech. This is not saying more than, what, more than a figure of speech, but it says those who happen to be there. Paul was speaking to those who happen to be there. You know, just a random thing. Just like Lydia. Remember Lydia at Philippi down by the river? She just happened to be there all the way from Thyatira. She just happened to be there, just happened to be down by the river, just happened to be right where she could hear Paul preach the gospel, and it just happened to go through her ears and, and, and to her mind and fall upon her heart, and God just happened to open her heart to receive the message. You know, that just... It just so happened. It just so happened. If you or I go on a trip and we get seated uh, on a plane, chances are someone will just happen to be traveling along on the same plane, going in the same direction, maybe sitting next to us. And, you know, when that happens, it could be a great chance to share the gospel. There happens to be a new family that's moved into your block. There, there happens to be you know, people that have uh, come to work in your place of employment. There just happen to be, um, that's the word I'm looking for, uh, people. There just happen to be people. People without Christ. And you keep coming into contact with them. And you're like, well, that's random. Is it? Is it really is anyone that God puts in your path that you get to talk to about Christ, is any of that random? You might try this next time you're on a plane or some similar conveyance and, and there's somebody that's forced to sit there with you for a few hours. Just look at them and go, hey, hi, I'm Jay. Or insert your name, otherwise it's weird. Uh, <laughs> hey, I'm Jay. Isn't it really weird that we just happen to be going the same way? I think that's a God thing. Yeah, try that. I don't know. That might, you might get kicked off the plane in that case. But what an interesting point of conversation. Hey, how, you know, this is, you know I just happen to be on this plane. I'm going to see where are you going, and you get into conversation. And I just, well, it just so happens I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. What about you? I, you could say, hey, maybe you are too. And then they go, nope. Then you have your, then you're off and running, or whatever the case may be. Anyway, realize who they are. This is the second major part of this: is to realize who they are. Know your audience. Understand. Paul was so good at this, and Paul tells the Corinthians, he's like, "For the Jew, I became a Jew. For the Gentile, for the Greek, I became as a Greek, by the, by, so that by any means some might be won to Christ." That was his. That was his heartbeat, and so he knew both groups. So what's the first thing you need to know about him, and, and this is true today just as much as it was in Athens, they are worshipers of idols. And Athens took the cake. Let me read to you from John Stott's commentary on this, on the book of Acts. He says, 
quote, in the Parthenon, the Parthenon's that big, you know, you can still picture the Parthenon because it's, it's largely still intact and, and it's what you think of when you think of Athens. Uh, in the Parthenon stood a huge gold and ivory statue of Athena. Hmm, I wonder if that's where they got their name. A uh, big ivory statue whose gleaming spear point was visible 40 miles away. Wow. Elsewhere, uh, there were images of Apollo, the city's patron of Jupiter, Venus, Mercury. Don't picture something with like just a round globe sitting on the top of it. We're not talking about the planets here. We're talking about those gods by those, by those names. Um, who else do we have? Bacchus, Neptune, Diana, Aesculapius. I, and that I, I took me a, a, an hour to figure out how to pronounce that. Uh, but the whole, the whole Greek pantheon, all the gods of Olympus, and they were beautiful. They were made not only of stone and brass, but of gold, silver, ivory, and marble. And they had been elegantly fashioned by the finest Greek sculptors, end quote. Yeah, I mean, when you think, and I'm sure you've at some point watched a History Channel thing on sculptures, and, and you've been told, well, the Greeks figured out how to have these sculptures where the arms were extended. You know, the Romans, they always had to have that piece of metal holding up the arm, but not the Greeks because they had all that stuff figured out. Those were the people that, that, that made these gods, and it was glorious looking. You, you think about it, idolatry in God's eyes, it has to be one of, if it's not the most provoking sin of all, I don't know what is. You say, well, murder. Nope, not in God's eyes. Idolatry is far more heinous. It is far darker. It is far more evil in the heart. But baby, I tell you what, on the outside, idolatry looks pretty sweet, doesn't it? It's always been so. We don't make things idolatrous that are hideous and ugly on the outside. It's always the really, really beautiful things. It's Hollywood in technicolor. Idols are anything, of course, that we substitute for God. So we think, oh, we're past that, you know, because we don't have idols. Yes, we do, because an idol is absolutely anything, whether it's stone or metal or whatever, that we serve and worship and devote our, our heart and soul to. So anything that replaces God, we're to love the Lord our God with what? All our heart and soul and mind and strength. So when we become so enamored with and treasure things above God, those are idols. And I mean, there's so many idols in our world today. And, and not, you know, if, if you appreciate some of these things, it doesn't make you an idol worshiper, but it can quickly become that. Think of sports, for instance. Sports is one of those areas where people quickly can become too consumed with it. You think of entertainment, celebrities. How on earth with the Ukraine thing going on and, and the school shooting in Texas, how on earth did so much time get spent talking about Johnny Depp and Amber Heard? Huh? Why do we care? Well, because there's celebrities, there's idol, you know, idol worship. I keep hearing this, uh, I don't know if you've heard it, this advertisement from Ewan McGregor. Um, and he's like, at the end of your lives, because <laughs> he has a Scottish accent, at the end of your lives, you won't look back and say, oh, I could have had a, a nicer, larger TV. And I'm like, preach it. What is he going to say? Is he going to say, oh, you'll, you'll wonder about how you've treated your family or how you've loved God. And he gets to it, he goes, no, you'll wonder about all the places you could have gone and visited. Travel. Yeah. 
Yeah, okay, thank you, Ewan McGregor. So now for one more idol, and it's really truly become an idol with a lot of people today, world travel, living for that, saving every dime you've got so you can go do this or do that, that particular um, thing. Jesus boiled it down really neatly for us. If you want to know about idolatry, he didn't use the word idol, but you'll see the definition here when I say it. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And I don't think he's only thinking monetarily because we have treasure of money, but we also have treasure of time and interest and, and, and passion. Where's all my passion? What do I spend daydreaming about? What is it that fires me up that I long for? Oh, ah, if I could only see revival in great... No, <laughs> If I could only go to see the Parthenon or whatever, whatever the case, case may be. How many of us still even notice the chilly water temperature at this point? Living in the cultures we're living in. You're like, man, I couldn't handle it, so I dialed it back a little bit. It just was too shocking to my system, and so I've just grown accustomed to it. And we look in the mirror, and we got blue lips, and we think, well, that's the, that was the natural color of my lips, wasn't it, when I started? But if it provokes us, if, if, if the thought of, of this rampant idolatry around us and in our lives, if that actually provokes us, that, that, that can be a good thing because what a conversation starter that is. You think about, I never know how to talk to unbelievers. What about questions like, hey, what are you living for? What? what no, seriously, what, like, what, what, what interests you? What, what drives you? What's your passion? Okay, uh, you're a bricklayer, but what do you think about when you're, when, when you're laying bricks? What, what is it that fuels your thoughts? What are, what are you wanting? What are you desiring? What do you give your heart and mind? Oh, and by the way, did you know, I don't know if you knew this or not, but the Bible says, both in the Old and the New Testament, that we're to love the Lord our God with all our heart and mind and soul and strength. Do you feel like you kind of, that, that sort of describes you? After talking about idolatry for about 20 minutes? You think it will? And you're like, yeah, but I'm idolatrous, true. I am. Like, this, this hits me at home. And that's tough. I, I mean, it's hard as Christians when we go, yep, that's me. But at least here's the silver lining in that. We all understand idolatry. We all understand a heart that isn't where the heart needs to be. So that, that gives us a place. So if we understand who we're dealing with, we're dealing with idolaters, of which we once were, maybe still are, but we can talk. Okay, they hold to worldly philosophies. Big surprise there. Paul's at Philosophy Central, University of Cambridge, so to speak, but it's actually, Cambridge didn't exist, so it's actually Athens. Athens, where, where would you have pegged the, the, the very core and very origin of human philosophy? Athens, right? Athens. It says some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Who are these two schools of thought? I don't want to spend a lot of time talking about these. I'm sure you know the Epicureans and the Stoics, one from another. But uh, according to Bach, the Epicureans were agnostic secularists. Agnostic secularists. That is, they didn't know whether they believed in God. They really didn't care if they believed in God's God. Who cares? They didn't, 
They just didn't have time for it. They were secularists. Here's their thought, uh, to put it in quotes, nothing to fear in God. So this is sort of their slogan. Nothing to fear in God. Nothing to feel in death. So death is just the end of everything. Pleasure can be attained and evil can be endured. So the world's an accident. When we die, we're just worm food. So we can live for now, maximize pleasure, minimize evil, get through it to the next pleasure, and that's life. That's the Epicureans. Stoics were different. They were, uh, they were pantheists, but again, they weren't really that much concerned with the idea of the gods. They were very, very sort of practical, and they were into things like reason, self-sufficiency, obedience, duty, honor. You know the, you know the drill? How many saw the movie Gladiator? Gladi- Gladiators? Gladiator? Anyway, Gladiator, right? Yeah? Do you remember the character uh, of Marcus Aurelius in that? He was the, the king at the beginning. Not the bad king later, but the, good, spo- the supposedly good king. Marcus Aurelius was an a, uh, emperor philosopher, philosopher, philosopher emperor, and he was a Stoic. If you read the Stoics today, you would actually be enriched to some extent. Like, it, like if you didn't have Christianity and you just wanted to find something that would help you be successful in life and kind of deal with life, they actually had some you know, pretty good notions of, hey, man, you're here. Nobody else is going to do it for you. You do it yourself. You work hard. You, you put in the integrity, blah, blah, blah. I mean, we would, we would embrace a lot of what these people said. And, and you can even tell that all of these philosophies are still alive and well around us. Paul was an educated man. Paul understood what they were about. Paul was even able to quote some of their own philosophers and their own poets. And Paul enters into their world enough to think with them a little bit. Now, that doesn't mean that he confined himself and avoided Scripture altogether or the, or the resurrection or Christ, but he understood enough to be able to enter into that world and and be able to talk to them. When you and I speak to people of this world, we need to understand that we're not coming to people with blank slates. Maybe that's our confusion and our frustration when we start to witness to someone. Lo and behold, they're not just sitting there waiting to hear and hang on our every word. Because believe it or not, even the simplest person that you think, well, they, they didn't go to college and they, you know, they don't seem that bright or whatever the case might be, uh, and those two don't have to go together, just so clarify, you can be bright and not go to college. But some of the people you least expect anything from, you start to talk to them and peel back the layers, and they all have philosophies of life. They've all put something together. They've cobbled together. We don't preach into a vacuum. Their, their worldview is resting on sort of wobbly pylons of bits and pieces of things that seemed, have seemed true to them, and so they're hanging on to them, and that's what they're resting on. And so our object is to get up there and just kick those out from Well, with kindness, yeah? To, to, to give them something else to look to. And, and chances are they're not going to just overnight go, yeah, all right, yeah, I'm throwing out everything, and I'm, yeah. But that's... Understanding that we're up against that. And they are condescending. They are condescending. Smart people have a way of being smug. I don't know if you've noticed that or not. Uh, Paul was no slouch himself. Paul had a towering intellect. Anybody that reads Paul, no matter whether they're a believer or an unbeliever, they will, they will admit, this guy's smart. And he was. He, uh, he could quote the philosophers that, that they're quoting. At the same time, 
He studied under the premier, I mean, the Jewish people still know and recall Gamaliel, the one at whose feet Paul was trained. So Paul is like super, super smart. What do the philosophers say about him? You see it in there? They call him a babbler. Babbler. That's not very nice. Have you ever been called a babbler before? Every Sunday, but I mean you. Have you ever been called a, a babbler? The word literally, at its and this is the etymological core of the word, it would literally mean a seed picker. A seed picker. And a lot of times etymology doesn't tell you everything there is to know. But there is something to that. In that what they're saying about him is that he's really eclectic. You know, we say that like it's a good thing now. Oh, I'm very eclectic. To them, that was just, you haven't bothered to think through things to come to a pure philosophy of any kind. You're just grabbing a little here, grabbing a little there. And, and it was sort of like laziness to them. Like the worst thing uh, that an artist can say to another artist is, your work is derivative. Derivative. How many have heard that? It's a put down, isn't it? It's derivative. What do they mean? They mean you went to see like the movie Star Wars, and then three weeks later you wrote a script called Galactic Wars. And, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, and, and people are like, yeah, you just stole the idea. There's nothing original. On the tomato meter, Paul, you're coming in at about a 10. They, they are accusing him of not having an original thought. He's a hack. He's not a philosopher. The truth is, his ideas are so far beyond them, they don't comprehend. They don't understand who the God of the, of the universe actually is. They, they've got all this pantheon of gods that they don't even believe in, and they have no connection. When he's preaching about the resurrection, they don't even understand that. They're not comprehending. Well, how does that help us? How does that help us? Well, it helps us like, George W. Bush. Remember, he used to talk about the advantage of being misunderestimated. That's when I'm strongest is when people are misunderestimating, <laughs> which, by the way, is not a word. But, uh, yeah, but no, I mean, that's, that's what we're dealing with. We're dealing with people, when we start talking about faith, our IQ drops 20 points in their estimation. They're like, okay, dummy. Has nothing to say to me. But that can be to our advantage. It can be to our advantage. Finally, they're curious. Not all. Not all. They kind of fall into one of those two spectrums. But some are curious. Those who didn't reject Paul out of hand wanted to hear more. It says, and they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. This was Luke's commentary. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. See, we make the mistake of thinking that a group of people who seem so smart and so confident and so condescending with all their degrees and their pedigrees who call us seed pickers, we think, well, there's nothing we can say. They're closed, right? They're not going to listen to me. You sit down on a, on, on a plane and, and you say to the guy next to you, hey, what do you do for a living? Oh, I'm a professor of philosophy. What are you going to say about Jesus to him? You're thinking, I'm going to read my book. <laughs> and hope it's a smart looking book. Uh, 
Yeah, yeah. But we'd be wrong. They'd be wrong. They take Paul to the Areopagus, also known as Mars Hill. That's another way of referring to it. That was the focal point of the city. It's near the Acropolis, which was where the Parthenon was. And, and this spot, um, what, the Areopagus, was, was a spot where sometimes judicial proceedings took place. So some people think that Paul was on trial. I don't, I don't believe that. Um, the, the people that I've read that I agree, agree with, you know, the commentators, there's just no wording here to suggest, like, Luke would tell us if Paul had been arrested. He's not charged with a crime. They seem genuinely interested. We want you to come up here. We're, we're, whether you want to or not, we're taking you here. And they're just carrying it, basically almost carrying him there and putting him there. And then all of the philosophers surround him. And all of these people that have all of this interest in the various things, they surround him. They want to know what it is that, that, that he's about. How would you like to have that happen? We grab you, you know, the heathen grab you, and they drag you down to Jack Kilby Square. Ooh, now we're talking, this is, this is big time, isn't it? Now things have gotten real. And all the city council and the county council, they come out and they surround you, and they bring all the big philosopher wigs from the JUCO. And, uh, and <laughs> I mean, there's, some, there's some smart people out there. And they just surround you, and they're like, okay, man, Let's hear it. Explain yourself. What is this Jesus all about? What is this, what is this gospel all about? We'll look at his, uh, his defense next time, but despite this, this frightening experience that, I mean, we would be frightened, what we have to see is the hunger and the curiosity that, that, that is there. You know, Luke says that all they ever did, these, and I think Paul, uh, Luke is throwing an elbow do you notice that? I do, seriously, because I think he took offense that they called Paul a seed picker. So I think this is like giving it back to him just a little bit in the way he chooses. It's like all these people did all day long was sit around and look, look and talk about something new. They're just like, whatever's new, you know, that's what they want to talk about. It was like the original TikTok. That was, that was Athens. Just give me something new to keep me, you know, something flashy for me to look at. But what does it say? What does it say about him? Here are these really smart people. They're curious. They don't have all the answers. When you talk to someone about Christ, I don't care how smart they are, how adamant they are, how much of a know-it-all they are. They are hiding insecurities and vulnerabilities, and they, hit, they have philosophical questions that philosophy itself would admit it has not answered yet. Do you know that philosophy has gone so far down the tubes, and I, and I mean... Honestly, I think it's the correct assumption and conclusion to come to if you're looking at it only from a human standpoint. All they argue about anymore is how can we know what we know? And they don't have an answer for that. How do we even know that anything is even knowable? That's where philosophy has gone. They used to ask big questions like, why am I here? Why is the universe here? Scientists are asking those questions now. And they're coming up with... uh, difficult answers for them because the universe clearly shows design, the evidence of design, nothing random. And so atheist scientists are like, man, we got to come up with an answer for this because, man, this thing looks like it was really thought out ahead of time. How do we explain that? How do we explain that? There are people who want to know. We assume that their bravado is 
genuine when they're like, oh, I'm Mr. Philosopher. What's, you know, why don't you prove something to me? And the truth is they're harboring questions that they don't have answers for. I ordered a book the other day after listening to a particular podcast. Um, it, it's not out yet. It's coming out in a couple days. Genuinely looking forward to it. It's called Confessions of a French Atheist. I listened to this guy talk, and uh, first of all, can you think of any snootier philosopher or scientist or atheist in the world than a French one? All right? That puts him up there as far as I'm concerned. Like, I, oh, if I get on the plane and it's a French philosopher next to me, forget about it. But no, he, w- he was raised as an atheist. I mean, well, nominal Catholicism, but his family didn't believe in God, and he rejected the idea without even thinking about it. And somehow... As a scientist, he ended up in America, and, and, and if I understood his story correctly, I'll, I'll find out in the book, but I think he picks up a hitchhiker, and this hitchhiker says something to him about Jesus and kind of challenges him to think about Jesus, and, and, and you know, he's, he's like treating it like it's McDonald's or something. I mean, he's just looking askance at it, and he's thinking, ah, I'll just, I'll just sit down tonight, and I'll, I'll think through this for about 30 minutes, and I'll and I'll show why Christianity is untrue. And the 30 minutes that evening didn't work, and neither did the weekend, and neither did the rest of his life because he kept trying to disprove it. And what he found was that those things which he had so confidently held, that Christianity is so, such an easy thing to brush aside, he couldn't brush aside. And he ends up coming to faith through that. Not a great story, but, that, but that's, they are out there. They are out there. Be provoked. Yeah, they're smug. Yeah, they're self-assured. They're steeped in philosophy. They're they're idolatrous to the core of their being. But if that provokes us, then let it not be a provocation where we just say, well, I don't want anything to do with that. Let that encourage us to, to hang in there, to keep showing up, to reasoning with them. It's not get numb. We're, we're just, we're just, it's human, it's understandable, but let us not be numb to what's going on around us. And if you're under, uh, an unbeliever today, I would just say to you this, and I'm just challenging you, like, like somebody must have challenged that French philosopher, dude. You talk a good game. You feel very smart about the things that you're, that you're saying, but let's be perfectly honest and put our cards on the table here when it comes to philosophy and science and all the rest they have not provided ultimate answers and the honest ones will tell you that the honest ones will tell you that the human mind isn't even capable of laying hold of and understanding all the mysteries of the universe you might as well try to teach a dog calculus you can keep Doing that day after day, that dog will never get it. There are things beyond our comprehension when it comes to this universe that science cannot answer and never will. The only way you're going to know the mysteries of the universe and the truth is if the God who made the universe reveals them to you. And he has. He's, he's given his witness in, in the glory of nature and all of the beauty and the, and the stars, the planets, all that surrounds us that shouts of the glory of God. He's displayed his holiness, his character, his benevolence. And he's revealed himself ultimately in these last days through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we put all that together and when we see our idolatry, what we realize 
ought, what we ought to realize is we need a savior. And God has provided that savior for French scientists and philosophers and Athenians, the Epicureans, the Stoics, and even for one such as you. And I would ask you today to be curious, be provoked. Let's pray. Lord, as your people, we pray that we might be provoked to want to share, to give reasons. Lord, I pray that you just fill us with confidence, not confidence that, that we're the next uh, Josh McDowell or somebody like that, but just the, just the quiet confidence that can even just ask questions. And uh, Lord, we pray that, that you would use us in that way and fill us with that kind of confidence, free our hearts from the idolatry that's so rampant around us. Help us to lay our hearts upon you. May we treasure you above all things. You are glorious and you are worthy of it. So that shouldn't be that hard for your people. So awaken us to that. And I pray, Lord, that that your gospel might go forward and that it might fall upon ears of the curious. Lord, that some who have sought answers elsewhere and come up dry might hear the gospel and see Christ in his glory and his love and his mercy, be drawn to him, believe upon him, and be saved. We ask it in his name. Amen.